0: Michael, have you seen the movie Inception?
1: Is that the Chris Nolan movie about the dream within a dream within a dream?
0: Yeah, so it's like keeps going in, dream within a dream. And I kind of had an inception moment in college because I was preparing to become a social studies educator and I got handed a book called The Social Studies Wars and it was the history of social studies. And I at that point did not know that anyone would have written such a book. And so it was kind of like, a history within a history within i don't know it reminded me of inception
1: no you, that's crazy
0: did you know that people wrote about the history of teaching social studies
1: only because i think that i've read an article about it but i don't often think about the history of teaching history
0: in education we often have the problem of we don't look to our past enough right we often try new fads or new ideas and we don't look back to see if people have tried similar things before
1: oh but whenever we're talking about, like inquiry or something, some new, new method, there's always someone who says, we did this 20 years ago. Yeah, I think that people carry
0: that wisdom with them, but a lot of new people don't get it. And I think all fields could benefit, right? A history of science education, a history of math education. But as history people, we've got to know the history of social studies, right?
1: We should. I hear we have a guest. Well, he
0: knows a lot about this topic. And in fact, I would actually say he is the authority on this topic. Welcome to the podcast, Ron Evans.
2: Thank you, Dan. I appreciate that. Happy to be here. We're happy to have you.
0: Ron, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education, your career, and how you got to where you're at?
2: You know, I was in high school, in middle school, I suppose even in grade school. I was one of those students who sort of floated through school and wasn't really into it that much. If they didn't give me too much trouble, I wouldn't give them too much trouble. And so, um, uh, when I got into college, looked around, well, what do I want to major in? And somehow my history class I took as a freshman resonated because in that class, the professor and the grad assistant who taught a discussion once a week class, they disagreed on a lot of historical topics like the New Deal and um, and it was in the, 60, uh, the early 70s, actually, toward the end of at right at the end of the 60s decade and uh, and so it was fascinating to hear their differences and to start to see that history was written by people in different ways and the conflicts that were going on in our society at that time over social issues like the war like civil rights were part of historical writing as well and so suddenly that opened up the interest and I I majored in history and finished my degree in history, and I still wasn't a great student. I was a so-so student in college. And uh, you know, what do you do? You hang out a, a shingle that says historian. Well, not with the bachelor's. That doesn't work very well. So I looked around. I thought, well, what am I going to do? And I, I was a VISTA volunteer. I tried different things. I worked. Uh, all oh, I did
1: AmeriCorps. I, uh, oh, cool. I enjoyed the Vista volunteers.
2: Yeah, good. We were all, you know, Vista volunteers in general wanted to save the world. And so I brought that. Then later I decided, oh, I want to go back and just be a teacher. That's where that's going to be my calling during the Vista experience that I decided. uh, And I was in an inner city community in Kansas City working with former Black Panthers on a community revitalization um, project and uh, and I, I realized during that time how intractable some of our problems were in the society and uh, so I went back got a teaching credential got eventually some experience teaching a master's degree a doctorate and here we are the masters the, the credential and masters were from Oklahoma State University my advisor recommended uh, Stanford and Indiana as good places for a doctorate I ended up going to Stanford. And, and then I've been, I taught at the University of Maine for three years, and I've been at San Diego State ever since. Someone with a history
0: background and then a teaching background. So how did you end up fusing those together to start writing about the history of social studies?
2: Was the interest just kind of natural? Well, a couple of things. In graduate school, I sort of read myself into writing about the history of the field. I, you know, I, I realized when I went to my doctoral program that I was already an issue-centered educator, an issue-centered teacher, that I used issues to help kids get interested in history. I used current day issues and ongoing sort of persistent issues as a a hinge to get them hooked and interested in the topics we were studying. That sort of interest, I was looking at how can, what can I write about related to that? And I I explored different avenues, including uh, qualitative field research during grad school, and I continued doing some of that. But uh, what I ended up seeing was that there was a lot of history relevant to the, a lot of history in social studies relevant to what I thought was a good approach, this issue-centered approach, and in comparison with other approaches. And so I started doing some work. My doctoral dissertation, for example, was a history of the problems approach in social studies, which was another way of, of naming and framing um, the issue-centered approach that I have sort of advocated over many years. And in studying the history of that, and I, ha- I had a table that I sat at every virtually every day at the library during graduate school, and the books were all right there next to me, all the books written by the social studies greats of the past, uh, from uh, and the textbook collection right behind that. And so, uh, you know, I just kept browsing through all this stuff, and it piqued my interest in people from the past who had advocated certain kinds of approaches to social studies. And I started asking questions. Why didn't this approach get more pickup in the schools? And why did that approach, and the more traditional, why did it last? What was the staying power behind the more traditional approach? And then as I read more, I discovered some of the works that had been done previously about the history of the field, and I was never satisfied with those works. They... Hazel Hertzberg had written the most recent and useful work from 1981 or two, titled Social Studies Reform, and and some dates, uh, 1992 to 1980, or something like that. And I wasn't satisfied. I liked her work in a lot of ways, but I wasn't satisfied with it. So that kept me going and, and made me want to do more writing. And uh, And I wanted to do a better job of showing what the issue-centered folks had advocated over the years. So I was motivated partly by that, by the desire to to write a history of an issue-centered approach, which I would describe as a, a dewey and uh, progressive approach to the field. And uh, Hazel Hertzberg didn't really do justice to that approach. In fact, in her book, I realized later as I s- kept studying, she didn't even mention Harold Rugg, who was one of the big heroes. The Rugg heroes. textbook. Right. He, yeah, right. He wrote the Rugg textbooks. They made it into schools. They, they embodied an issue-centered approach to teaching history and geography and the social sciences, and, and, and she didn't, doesn't even mention him. So I had to do that work. I felt driven to, do, to build a history that included the story of Harold Rugg and other advocates of different approaches and, and try to understand how this had all played out in schools. Well, Ron, I really appreciate
0: you writing your book because um, I was at the University of Oklahoma, um, where Neil Hauser is, and they handed me Hazel Hertzberg's. Basically, it looks like it was written on a typewriter, and there's just something about reading something that was written on a typewriter that kind of made me a little depressed. So when I saw your book, it was pretty exciting to see that somebody had taken another stab at the, the topic.
1: Dan, how many people are handing you books? I always had to
0: buy them. Hazel Hertzberg wasn't even a book, but they handed me the book, let me look at it, then I had to buy my own copy. <laughs> okay,
1: that, that's what I was trying to figure out this entire time.
0: So Ron, can you kind of help, uh, help people understand a little bit about the history of social studies? Because it is a very unique history to the United States. I think a lot of times if you talk to people from other countries, they may ask, what is the social studies? Because you can sometimes see a difference between the discipline of history or the discipline of geography. But can you take us back a little bit to the beginning and walk us through kind of the, the, where the social studies came from and maybe some of the major moments in the history of the field?
2: You get this question a lot. And I got this question in job interviews in the 1980s and 90s when I was searching for jobs. And, and the, um, uh, the question is often framed as, what's the difference between social studies? and history. Why do we hear these different terms? And the answer really goes back to the 1890s and the turn of the 20th century, that historians were the first disciplinary professional group to really organize. And their professional association developed out of the, uh, there was a previous organization that was more generic social science made up of, of uh, non-professional and professional social scientists and historians. And the, the historians said, well, we need a, a true professional organization. And so in the latter part, and I've forgotten the exact date, latter part of the 19th century, they formed the American Historical Association and it became many things, but also an advocacy group for the teaching of history in schools and for a curriculum that would be mostly history, but would also include some of the social sciences and other subject areas. As the turn of the 20th century was approaching, historians and educators formed committees that would uh, address the curriculum and especially the social studies curriculum. And the justification for that was to better coordinate schooling from high school and college, so there would be a connection between the college entrance requirements and what was going on in schools. And uh, the first statements about what should be going on in social studies, though it wasn't called that, were statements mainly dominated by historians the AHA and the NEA collaborated, uh, and there was a report in 1892, then another report in 1899. The 99 one is the one I like the most and I think gave it greater depth to the whole approach. And it was it was a traditional history approach. And they said, well, we need to have a focus on history as the mainstay of this curriculum that that we, we now would call social studies. And it needs to be taught in fairly traditional ways with the textbook as the backbone of the course some educators reacted to their statements and said, well, you know, this might be fine for some students, but we need an approach that is more child-friendly. We need an approach that connects better to the issues that are facing us in in the 20th century, the issues related to industrialization, immigration, a whole slew of uh, issues, poverty and wealth, et cetera. And uh, so, John Dewey and other educators started reacting not uh, many to the to these reports, but also in, in writing uh, in general about what education should be. And then by, by 1916, a, another report came out, and it was actually the culmination of a series of three reports about social studies, titled the Report on Social Studies, and the 1916 report Uh, framed a different approach to the curriculum that would blend the history and the social sciences, and it would blend it in a way that would center around problems that young people might be interested in, and at least would give some emphasis on on those problems uh, as a way of making history and the social sciences of interest. So that sort of got the ball rolling on social studies. What were some of the problems that the Problems of Democracy course might attack? Well, the Problems of Democracy is one of the recommendations from that 1916 report. They called, it's, I've described it in my work as a sort of consensus report at the time that moved the field toward the left a bit, toward a more progressive vision. And Problems of Democracy is one of the recommendations. They also recommended that we have world history, American history, community civics, and But the problems of democracy was going to be a senior-level elective, was the idea. And what problems did it address? Problems that were defined as social problems, political problems, and economic problems. And so many of the textbooks actually defined the problems that way. And then later it it morphed and and the problems would include international, problems of international relations, etc. And it would blend the the problems of democracy course and the textbooks, which I studied in some detail during graduate school, would blend historical information with current manifestations of these problems and issues. And they would pose direct questions to students like, what should we do about poverty in our cities and in our country? So those were some of the examples
0: so this really at this point you had kind of laid out there's a traditional vision that's put forward with history at the center of the curriculum and then there's this more progressive vision which has the problems of democracy course kind of at the heart of it where you're studying the issues of the day to help students become better citizens which is supposed to be the whole purpose of social studies that's kind of been professed so how do those two camps kind of move from 1916
2: forward the battle lines had been drawn By after 1916, you had historians on one side saying we need this traditional history approach. We need more history continuing in the curriculum. And then on the other side, you had educators and sociologists and political science, some other folks arguing for a shift toward more inclusion of the other social sciences and of present day and continuing issues and questions. And by the 1920s, there was sniping back and forth in articles, in conferences, et cetera, and in books. And uh, and so I try to portray that in my uh, book, The Social Studies Wars.
0: It would have been exciting if it actually turned into a real war. Well, it, yeah, I'm it's picturing not, now, like
1: the, the Rebel the wrong... Alliance versus the, yeah. you know, the Empire.
2: The the war is re- war is really the wrong term. And I've been taken to task on that by a few colleagues. Uh, was it really war? Well, they weren't shooting at each other, but it was a war of words. It was a rhetorical war. And, and argument, which are the
1: best kind.
2: I suppose, and and we engage in a lot of those in our society, and uh, it's great to have the freedom to do that. By the late 1920s, one observer said that about a third of the schools were doing traditional history, another third were doing the new, more progressive kind of social studies, and another third were doing something else altogether. So it was sort of a mixed picture. But by the 1930s and into the 40s, you had more and more schools doing more progressive things and doing the newer kind of social studies, having more attention to problems, issues, to some of the, the newer social sciences, rather than just sticking with history. And and one of the reasons for this was that, that many of them felt that this would better Connect with students. History, if it's taught just as history for its own sake, is often quite boring for students, with the teacher doing a lot of talking, the textbook readings being all set in the past, and the connection to our lives is often lost. Even though we know that the connection's there and we need to keep that in mind, uh, a lot of teachers and students don't make that connection very well. Sometimes, So so there was, there was this ongoing battle over what should be taught. And then there were new developments along the way. It kept morphing and changing. Uh, and so you had in the 1960s, you had in the 1930s, as I said, growth of uh, the progressive strand. And the rug materials were the best-selling for the junior high school at that time, best-selling textbooks out there. And then they came under attack. And you wrote an entire
0: book on Harold Rugg. It's called This Happened in America, Harold Rugg and the Censure of Social Studies. So what was going on with Harold Rugg that makes him such an important figure in the 1930s?
2: He had the bright idea uh, of writing a textbook series specifically for the junior high school market because there was sort of a gap there. The junior high school was a rather new creation. And and he thought, well, we need a book that will uh, appeal to the children at that age and uh, his books were embodied this issue-centered vision for social studies. And and if you look at the books, there's a lot of narrative history in it, but they're framed with issues and questions of the present, ongoing issues. And so, and then the, he had a, a course, part of his three-year course. The final book was Problems of Democracy course, and, and it, you know, frames each of the different chapters as a uh, one of the problems of democracy that Rugg believed we had to wrestle with as citizens to really do a good job of voting and being thoughtful citizens. And so the rationale for Rugg's material and his work, you can find it in his writings And I wrote about this, basically he said, we have a troubled world. We have a troubled world. And citizens in the United States are not wrestling with the issues that they need to wrestle with in order to make the world a better place. They're easily deceived by charlatans. They easily vote on the basis of how someone appears rather than the issues behind the election, for example. And we see examples of this to the present day, that people are deceived and they vote based on things that aren't the most rational sometimes. Well, it's a progressive vision. It it sold well. In fact, one of the salesmen for Ginn and Company that distributed Rugg's books said that they sold better than any book he had ever sold for schools. And uh, with that came some exposure and notoriety, and uh, some parents who were more conservative looked at their children's books. One of them happened to be a member of the American Legion, And he gave a speech at his American Legion post saying how disturbed he was, that this was the book his children had, and that it raised issues and questions, that it wasn't traditional history. And one thing led to another. Within a couple of years, there was a huge controversy. And the RUG textbooks uh, and the controversy involved not just the American Legion, but a lot of patriotic groups and business groups that came to attack RUG. And it was played out over several years around uh, 1939 to 1942, by the end of the controversy, the rug books were out of schools. They were censured.
0: It reminds me a little bit of some of the political attacks and controversy surrounding Howard Zinn's work more recently. Some mm-hmm. you know, state governors mm-hmm. and politicians have attacked his work as being used in school, and even though it's gained some popularity and used in more classes.
2: Yeah, yeah that's right. The controversy in Arizona and Tucson over multiculturalism and uh, if you look at the list of, of books that were attacked, it included Zen's work.
0: Right. The kind of the height of, of the social reconstructionist progressivism was probably the 1930s. But World War II brings forth a lot of patriotism and it kind of served as a watershed movement in moving the social studies back towards more traditional. What things happened after World War II?
2: World War II led definitely to a lot of direct instruction that was war related. And I think it didn't uh, didn't turn the schools completely against this issue-centered approach right away. But the controversy did. The controversy damaged the issue-centered approach. And then by the 50s, what emerged was a new attempt to reform schooling, and it grew partly out of attacks on progressive education writ large. So you had the rug controversy during World War II, but then after World War II, uh, you had uh, people popping up and criticizing progressive education as a whole, that the reason our schools, one of the problems in our country, they said, was we're falling behind other nations, we're in danger because our schools aren't doing the job, and during the Cold War, that really resonated. Uh, The Russians launched the satellite before we did and the entire atmosphere of nuclear developments it was a heated atmosphere and so the thinking became we need to develop a more scientific form of education a more rigorous form of education and and it started in math and science but then it quickly spread into history and the social sciences. And so out of the 1950s and into the early 60s, we had a new movement for school reform that was in some ways a little bit progressive, pedagogically progressive, but driven by Cold War concerns and by a drive for excellence. And so uh, you had the work of Jerome Bruner and in social studies, folks like Ted Fenton and many others, with an inquiry-oriented or a discovery-oriented approach to teaching. Again, pedagogically similar to a lot of what Rugg and the progressives were arguing for, but generally based and rooted in a discipline. Most of the projects were discipline-based. So, uh, for example, Bruner's most famous involvement was in Mākos or Mana Course of Study, and it was rooted in anthropology. And it's brilliant material. It's I would love to have my kids study Mākos. I would love to have had them study it when they were in fifth grade. They did not. They studied traditional American history in fifth grade, but it was rooted in anthropology and yet pedagogically very advanced, the equivalent of, or even more advanced than what Rugg and the progressives had been doing. So things continued to morph. And interestingly, this new reform found adherents, found a lot of federal funding, which the progressives really hadn't done much. They'd gotten some support from foundations, from the Rockefellers, et cetera, but They didn't get federal money very much. You know, by this time, this became a national security issue in the Cold War, and there was a lot of money pumped into science education, math education, social studies, even English education. And and so, you know, materials were developed, and they started reaching the schools, and interestingly, there was a reaction again to those materials, because they were pedagogically progressive, and they asked children to think deeply and ask questions about other societies, but even about our own society and our own institutions. And that's part of what happened with MAKOS.
1: You can't it was, question our own society.
2: Well, <laughs> it almost seems like the, what's the lesson of all this social studies uh, wars or the fighting over social studies is that if you create materials for schools that do question some of our institutions and our society, and they actually make it out into schools and teachers are using it effectively, it leads to controversy, and then the materials come under attack. It's a regular pattern of the social studies wars. Dating all the way back to uh, Socrates,
0: right? Who, well, uh, inf- yeah. who has uh, corrupted the minds of, of the youth.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So the, the new social studies had a lot of steam in the, the 60s and 70s. And so then would you say the next major movement starts with a nation at risk in the standards accountability reform movement of the 1980s?
2: Yes. After the new social studies lost funding due to the controversy, and that loss of funding also affected the other subject areas, but it it eliminated the funding for social studies, then uh, there was sort of a period of transition. And what emerged was there was a lot of concern about why Johnny can't read, a lot of concern about basic education. And some of the folks advocating basic education had been around since the 50s, since the days of Arthur Vester and the organizations, the Council for Basic Education that he helped found. And that became the new mantra. And going into the 80s, you had President Reagan elected and you had his commissioner of education appointing a blue ribbon commission Reagan actually didn't, and the administration fought this, they didn't approve the appointment, but the appointment of the National Commission on Education that led to publication of A Nation at Risk in 1983. And I still remember, I was a teacher at the time, the headlines were huge banner headlines. Our nation is in trouble. If a foreign power had imposed these educational standards on our children, it would be seen as an act of war. From that point on, we've been chasing accountability reform in the interest of improving the schools based on the notion that the schools were failing okay so that's been the trend ever since and uh, my most recent book schooling corporate citizens traces the history of accountability reform and its impact on social studies
0: our recent guest in episode 36 was david berliner who wrote the manufactured crisis which basically argued that the whole crisis was manufactured And continues to be a lot of the panic about education relates to scores on tests that oftentimes don't tell the full picture, like PISA scores and why we do worse. And I think David did a great job of pointing out a lot of the countries that do better in us on those tests. We don't want their education systems. They're test factories. (laughs) They prepare you as test takers, not as creative thinkers. And a lot of those countries actually have tried to adopt more models from the U.S. that bring forth creativity and things like that. The accountability reform movement is still having a lot of influence to today. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about where you think we're at today and some of the insights social studies educators could glean from this history?
2: We're still in the middle of a middle phase of accountability reform because most of the reformers and I think a lot of educators aren't questioning some of the basic assumptions. And what reached the extreme phase of No Child Left Behind and mandated testing, mandated by the federal government from grades three through eight, and then a slew of testing in other subjects as well, state by state. With testing, a lot of testing in social studies, virtually every state doing that as well, it's unraveled a little bit in recent years. We shifted and Obama kind of took what had happened under Bush and it morphed a bit. It's become a little more flexible. And with the common core development, which actually started before No Child Left Behind, the movement toward that. It has created a space where teachers have a little more flexibility, but it's still within the larger framework of systemic reform with using standards and testing to improve schools, with the idea being that the schools will compete for better test scores, we'll be able to compare districts, we'll be able to compare states, we'll be able to see how we're really doing in this world of education and keep improving. It hasn't really worked out that way to this point in terms of verifiable evidence that we're improving schools or that the schools are a better place than they were a few years before all this happened. So where are we now? In social studies, social studies has largely been neglected. In recent years, it's been on the back burner throughout accountability reform. Why? I think partly because while the advocates of reform gave lip service to democracy and social studies was part of the curriculum, they didn't emphasize it. They emphasized the human capital focus on developing people who could do math, who were literate who could be good employees, and social studies got less attention. There were battles in the 90s and 2000s over whether social studies should be tested, and social studies educators even came down on different sides on this question, because you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. There's the cuss word for the session. (laughs) If you go with the testing, then we know that it Diminishes teacher freedom and autonomy to do interesting, inquiry oriented, et cetera, stuff that tends to lead to a more more textbook teaching, and coverage of the content, a race through the content to prepare students for the test, teaching the test. To that, if you do accept the testing or advocate for it, if you don't, then your curriculum just gets left out, especially in the elementary school. So there's been a lot of evidence and concern recently among social studies folks that social studies is not being taught very much in the elementary school. And the evidence on this is mixed. I think that there is some teaching of social studies subjects In the elementary school, it varies a lot uh, by teacher, by state, and the primary grades, it's less, I mean, the evidence is pretty strong that there's a lot less teaching of social studies in those grades. By the time you get to fifth grade, it's sort of a part of the required curriculum, and there's some social studies being done. Is it at the level we'd want? Probably not. And, you know, even in the middle school, social studies has a less strong in terms of being part of the valued curriculum i hear from my students about this one of my students came up and said you know we have a new reform in our middle school and they're emphasizing literacy and science but not social studies and they're quit having social studies course they're not even teaching a course in u.s history anymore they just kind of folded it into the common core and so it's getting a little bit of attention but nothing like it should and so these trends concern me actually in the high school There are more units devoted to social studies now than there were in 1980. That's crazy. So there's more time being spent on social studies courses now in the high school. Now, how did that happen? It's because there's more courses required for everyone in every subject area. Instead of having a, a curriculum in the late 70s and 1980 or so that was heavily elective curriculum, students had choices, we've gone toward a more uh, rigorous requirements for everyone. And so there are more courses required in math, in science, in English, in social studies for all students in the high school. Uh, so we've they've actually increased the number of courses. But again, it's, it's still on the back burner in terms of what is the emphasis, who gets the money to improve the curriculum or, or develop uh, innovative projects, et cetera.
1: There's been a lot about the loss of civics in high school, Is that a trend uh, nationwide, or is that just something that people sometimes throw out there?
2: No, I think it's a real trend. There have been a lot of folks uh, expressing concern about it. And civics, of course, is really at the heart of social studies. The trends over the period of accountability and systemic reform have been toward more and more focus on discipline-based courses, traditional kinds of social studies curriculum. And civics, it doesn't fit that. Civics is more of an integrative thing. Harold Rugg really, I think, embodied the notion of of a good kind of civic education that focuses on issues and combines political, economic, and sociological education.
0: Ron, I have two takeaways when I look at the history of social studies. One is the early bird gets the worm. The fact that historians got their act together and advocated for history in schools may have had a lasting influence on the field of history being at the center of it. It'd be interesting to think if political scientists or anthropologists or sociologists had been more aggressive initially. And then secondly, I just want the problems of democracy course back. You know, Michael, we talk about this stuff all the time. I think a lot of teachers would really have fun with putting the problems of democracy at the center of the course. And isn't that the heart of what citizenship education should be?
2: I think it should be, and I was aware of problems of democracy when I was a middle school and high school teacher, and I did that. I put those issues and problems at the center of our curriculum, and I used the historical content in ways that would bring us to discussing those issues. So I did both. I taught history, but it was centered in and linked to current issues. And we had great debates about current issues and issues of the past that still resonated for us. Conscription is an example that comes to mind during the Civil War as one of the topics within that. And should we have a draft? Yeah, that those are, I think, valid takeaways. We should be raising questions. To what extent are our schools raising the issues that citizens need to deal with and be prepared to understand and vote on and take action on. We need that in our curriculum. So I definitely agree with that. Another is that teachers have choices. These different camps in the social studies wars, from the traditionalists to the Brunarian kind of uh, uh, inquiry or discovery-oriented folks, to the issue-centered, to the social justice folks, which is kind of an, a branching off of issue of the issue-centered and progressive. I mean, they those are some of the choices that teachers have, regardless of who's in charge of schools, regardless of what the curriculum says. We must do. Teachers can, I believe, still still choose to orient their teaching in ways that folks in each of those camps might support, given of course, and that context may place constraints on their work. That's what my students tell me, of course. Well, I'd love to do this, Professor Evans, but, you know, we have constraints. We have a test. We have to teach toward the test. Thankfully, in California, there's been a rollback in the tests, so there's less testing of social studies and history, uh, and uh, and teachers have a little more freedom. Uh, Another takeaway that means something to me and that uh, I think especially comes to bear in the uh, recent history in um, schooling corporate citizens is that money has influenced a lot of this stuff. A lot of the decisions about what we do in schools has been influenced by people with a lot of money. The people who went after RUG and censured RUG's materials, it was partly patriotic groups and partly folks with a lot of money, the National Association for Manufacturers and U.S. Chamber of Commerce, etc. And in more recent years, we've seen business-driven reform, accountability reform, again, driven by an economic conception of what schooling should be about, and folks with a lot of money calling shots, saying, our schools are broken, we've got to fix them, we know what we need to do. Follow this mandate and schools will improve. Well, schools have changed, but I'm not sure about improvement. If you want a time period for social studies that I would hold up as an interesting time period that showed promise, I'd go back to the 60s. I'd look at the Brunarian work and the discovery kind of social studies, and I'd also look at the, the early 70s issue, burst of issue-centered uh, materials that came out. And, and there was a trend in the 70s toward many courses, toward a focus on social issues. It was an exciting trend. Folks like Jonathan Kozel, uh, new open forms of education, more openness, more thinking about issues and problems in our society. And there's a danger that we lose that if we keep going the direction we've been going.
1: What is the role that the National Council of Social Studies takes in the wars?
2: I think it's been generally a progressive take on social studies. But early on, and I've looked at the archival papers of the, the NCSS There was concern that as these wars were emerging, that NCSS not take too strong a stand one side or the other. So while generally progressive and supportive of social studies teachers, it's sort of a consensus organization. And whichever way the wind blows, you'll find NCSS kind of, maybe I'm overstating that a little, but the winds of reform in the 60s, social studies was influenced, NCSS was influenced by the Brunerian direction of reform toward inquiry education with a discipline-based focus. And there were folks who pushed back on that and developed issue-centered materials, Oliver and Shaver's work, etc., during that time period. And so it was an organization that could provide a platform for both of those, for multiple approaches to the field. And that's still the case. Folks with different ideas of social studies are present in NCSS and in CUFA, the faculty organization is part of NCSS for college faculty. I see that NCSS has made strong statements at various times in its history on academic freedom, strong statements on some of the trends. And that's a healthy thing. And I think that's that's what we've, at its best, NCSS has done those things. It has not taken a strong stand that I've seen on the current school reform movement. It really hasn't, uh, it's kind of played along and it played it both ways. Like we're gonna keep doing our social studies thing, but you know we've gotta get along with these folks that are driving school reform in order to continue to have influence and can continue to be at the table. And, and sure, I can understand that argument. Uh, I'm not sure I totally agree with it because the public isn't hearing the other side. The public isn't hearing about Harold Rugg. They're not hearing about all the choices that are out there. And so I'm back to square one. The teachers have choices. If we do a good job of educating teachers, they'll know what some of the choices are, and they'll know how to translate that into effective classroom practice.
0: I also know from knowing uh, NCSS House of Delegate members that there's long been a concern that that NCSS does not address social justice, civil rights issues in our own day. We do do a good job of talking about them in the past and how brave it was to do civil rights in the past tense, but not in our own present time. And the social studies wars continue on, I guess, huh?
2: I guess so. I mean, it's <laughs> it's interesting to study and interesting to talk about. It's fascinating and it's political. And, and you know, you see all the choices when a controversy comes out. And, and it will. I mean, we just had one a year or so ago over AP U.S. history, right? In Colorado right. and other states. Yeah. Well, once again, all these different people come out of the woodwork and they have something to say about it. And all the choices are represented by the people who comment on it very often. And so, fascinating. So,
1: Well, this has been great. In the social studies wars, I want to be Lando Calrissian.
0: <laughs> cool. I don't know if that's an actual role. How about Harold Rugg? Can you be a Harold Rugg?
1: Sure. I just really like Star Wars. That's That was the Star Wars reference
2: I was told you I was going to do. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, you know... It, <laughs> It, it is, you know, it could be, it could be seen as a war, or it could be, it's a crusade. It's an ongoing crusade to educate the public in better ways, to 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 have a more open kind of education that that is more child friendly and more real. And so, the the civic education concern, I think, if I were to direct, if I were in the education chair that Joel Spring writes about and got to direct things, I mean, I would definitely say we need stronger civic education focused on issues drawing on history in the social sciences, not making them the product, not making them the the total focus, but drawing on them in sensible ways that will help young people learn about and get active in our social world.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you. You've been a great audience for uh, my uh, musings. Thank you. So where can our listeners find you, your books and your work online? Probably the best place to look for it is Ronald W. Evans at WordPress. And if, if you can remember my affiliation, San Diego State University, so there's a link there that goes to a, a little website I created, and it lists my books. And
0: We will link to those in our show notes so everyone can get them. And I do highly recommend uh, Ron Evans' books. I've read two of them and found that they really helped me understand a lot of these continuing issues. And we certainly hope to continue the discussion online, at NCSS, and in
1: other places. And if you're anything like Dad, people will just hand you the books. <laughs>
2: well, I have heard of this happening with my, a few of my books where someone thought it was so interesting that they handed it for free to someone else and said, <laughs> I want you to have this. because." That's how you Dan it.
1: only gets books. People just give it to him.
2: Everyone
0: continues cool. the tradition.
1: Yeah. <laughs> We're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. Tweet us at Visions of Ed if you're doing something creative in the classroom. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or we can do a live show in your house. Mm, That depends on where
0: you live and what kind of snacks you're providing. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air, and please do so. This helps people find our podcast we recently learned, and we even put instructions on our Twitter account of how to do so. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka.
1: And I'm at 42 Think Deep.
0: Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.